You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, let's open God's Word together. We're going to return this morning to our summer series in the Psalms. It's a practice that we have done over the last several uh, summers where we dig into these books. And so this morning we're going to be in Psalm 63. You'll find a a blue Bible somewhere near you on the seat or or the little tray below you. If you don't have a Bible, uh, feel free to grab that blue Bible. If you don't have a Bible at home or you know someone who might benefit from one of those, please take that blue Bible with you. That's our gift to you. And, uh, and you can use that or share that with uh, someone you know who would benefit from it. So we'll be in Psalm 63 this morning. And, uh, you know, the Psalms are, are such a unique and, and uh, wonderful book in the Bible. There's 150 of them. And they were all written over about a thousand-year time span. The themes in the Psalms range uh, from a lot of different topics. They range from, from Psalms of lament to Psalms of thanksgiving. There's Psalms of prayer and praise. There are royal Psalms, which refer to the kingship of God. And there's even uh, what's called messianic Psalms, Psalms that predict the coming of King Jesus and the deliverance he would bring for his people. Jesus quotes the Psalms more frequently than any other Old Testament book. And so in a lot of ways, the Psalms are the ancient hymn book of the early believers. These are the the songs and the poems and the meditations and the prayers that early believers would have sung and prayed and thought about in all circumstances of life. And, And so we too are invited to look at these in our circumstances. There is nothing we can experience in this life that these 150 psalms don't address somehow. So it's good and right for us to study these songs, to get them stuck in our heads, as they give us a complete view of the nature and character of God, a God that does not change. As Pastor Ryan taught us last week about the nature of sin and evil in the world, in that we don't have to look forward to some event or some person or sign to indicate the evil age has come, we know that we have been living in this evil age since humans decided to turn away from God and follow their own desires. And now in this period of time since Jesus' resurrection and His second coming, John in his letter of Revelation encourages the believer to hold fast to Christ even in the midst of this evil age. And if you didn't have a chance to listen to Ryan's message last week, I encourage you to find it on our website. All of our sermons are are posted there, and I'd love for you to go back and listen to that. In many ways, the Psalms serve the same purpose as John wrote Revelation. Through the Holy Spirit, they teach us about God. They, They show us how to pray, how to worship. They cultivate confidence, perseverance, hope, and joy. So while we live in this fallen world with sin and and evil ever-present around us, we can take heart in the fact, as we face the trials of our days, God's redemptive and restorative nature and His relentless pursuit of His people for Himself and His glory has never and will never change. The Psalms remind us, these these are gifts from the hand of God to strengthen and embolden us 
as we'll see today, we have every reason to make bold, decisive, and declarative statements about God and what He has done. So let's take a look now in Psalm 63. My soul thirsts for you is the title of this. A psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. Let's pray together. Lord, you've brought us to this place. And we're here this morning Uh, with a lot of different things on our minds and in our hearts. Uh, Lots of those things, Lord, will uh, try to distract us from our worship this morning. And God, I pray that you would release all of those things so that we could be here together in your presence. We believe that the words that we have just heard are from you and you speak them to us so that we may know you better. And so, Father, come. Father, I pray for the one who preaches his sins are many. I pray that we would see Jesus and him only. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Scholars differ a little bit about when this psalm was actually written. It could have been when King Saul was seeking David's life. Or... After David had become king, and his own son, whose name was Absalom, was seeking to kill him, we can perhaps lean toward the the latter, since David uses the term king here to describe himself. The account is found in 2 Samuel chapter 15, and it details the circumstance where Absalom, who was overtaken with the desire to be king stirred up opposition for David, and ultimately marched an army to Jerusalem to usurp David's throne. Absalom was envious. He felt that he deserved to be king, and he was going to force it to happen. Well, David heard about it, and he grabbed his family and all of his household, and he, and he headed for the hills. He crossed the River Jordan after this period of time in the wilderness, 
and he entered a city called Mahanaim where he was able to regroup and call for help. You can check out 2 Samuel 15 to find out what happens after that. But as they are leaving Jerusalem for the wilderness, they pass through the Mount of Olives on their way. Listen to this account from 2 Samuel 15. I'm going to jump around a little bit, starting in verse 13. It says this, And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us and, uh, quickly and bring down ruin on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out and all his household after him. And the king left ten concubines to keep the house. Jumping to verse 30. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. And it's somewhere along the way that David prayed this prayer. Of course, there's not a way for us to know exactly where he was when he wrote Psalm 63. But it seems significant that the author of 2 Samuel made it a point to include that they passed through the Mount of Olives, a location so significant in the New Testament. It's not impossible that there was a moment there where David turned heavenward to God and declared, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. And that's the moment I would like to study this morning. David, in the midst of unspeakable grief and fear, cried out to God with a bold declaration. The moment when when so many of us would say, how can there be a God who loves me, who cares for me, when this unspeakable, tragic, painful thing is happening? How can a loving God let this happen? Well, I think God has an answer for us through David this morning such that we too can boldly declare what David declared about God. David David modeled for us two dispositions that will help us with this, I think. And the first is, is this. David occupied himself with God, not with the wilderness. I hope I never know what it's like to have one of my children hunting me down to take my life. I can't really imagine it. And if you know my two daughters, you probably can't imagine it either. For you and for me, the enemy that is after us may not be a physical army led by one of our offspring, but the enemy is after us with the same amount of fervor and zeal that Absalom was when he was pursuing David. And the discontentedness you and I feel may not be because we have been forced from our home and and into the wilderness, but our sinfulness is ever-present with us, distracting us from our home in heaven, convincing us that things on this earth will be better and will better supply our comfort and happiness. It's very easy to occupy ourselves with our wilderness experiences and not God. Our declaration about God is therefore timid. Our faith can be shaken, our testimony unassured. In those moments, perhaps all we can muster is, Oh God, I think you are God. I'm not entirely sure I should seek after you. 
maybe there's a better way. The difficult circumstances we face in life have two potential outcomes, and the first is what David does here. He calls out to God and declares that his soul thirsts for him. His flesh faints for him as in a dry and weary land. Instead of questioning God's sovereignty and strength, grace and mercy, he leans closer to God. He prays that his soul would cling to God. Surely the the times in life that are the most severe, the most painful, can be the times when we feel the closeness of God most clearly. These events cause us to earnestly seek after him. And like David, seek him with our whole being. The other outcome is that we move away from God. Skeptical of his goodness and his steadfast love. If you're like me, you have experienced this. As a result of suffering, we can easily become occupied with the suffering itself and lose sight of God. Human suffering is so prevalent and happens so regularly in our lives, it's hard to even summarize it. There is suffering we endure because of the sin that we carry in our own hearts Because of the way sin affects our relationships and interactions with one another, the way sin distorts governments and societies, we suffer because of the fact we live in a world where where things are not the way they are supposed to be. Car accidents happen, hurricanes happen, condos collapse. Tragedy is before us all the time. And some will say, maybe you even said it, maybe I even said it, how can a loving God allow such hardships and tragedy to occur? Perhaps we've tried to answer that question from someone who's hurting and come up short with a response. I have mourned and grieved, I'm sure along with you, over the last several years about all of the tragedy that I'm observing most recently about that Condo collapsing in Florida. I grieve that. I grieve about the firefighter who uncovered his own daughter's body in that rubble. And I feel angry about it, and I wish it didn't happen, and I tell God that. But then, a psalm like this one reminds me that These experiences, these wilderness experiences, can either draw me away from God and begin to question, or it can cause me to occupy myself more with Him. Pastor Tim Keller puts it this way, if there is a God great enough to merit your anger over the suffering you witness or endure, then there is a God great enough to have reasons for allowing it that you can't detect. The more occupied we are with God and His heart of love for His children, the more bearable our trials and difficulties will be. We will be able to say with confidence, Oh God, You are my God. Even when tragedy strikes. So remember what I said earlier, that there's nothing that we can experience in this life that the Psalms somehow don't address. It's in there somewhere. And in each of these instances, 
The Psalms remind us where it is we can derive confidence, hope, and trust in God. The timeless characteristics and attributes of God that that embolden us and sustain us. So in order to cultivate this occupation with God, we see the second way David's disposition is helpful for us, and it's this. David was resolved. He was resolved to pursue God. No matter what. He was displaced. His own son was after him and wanted to take his life. He's evidently making this journey through the wilderness without any shoes. Did you catch that? He's overcome with grief and yet he's resolved to pursue God. And so now I think one way that we're invited to pursue God is through studying Scripture and specifically the Psalms. That's why we prioritize studying the Psalms in the summer. That's why we talk about these songs and these poems in such a way to encourage you to get them stuck in your head so that in the daily moments of life you need to remember you can bring them to mind. Recite them, sing them, meditate on them in the watches of the night. This book is the way the God of the universe communicates to us today. This is the way we can know who God is, what He's like, how he interacts with his people with, with steadfast love and, and with patience and gentleness and kindness, justice and mercy. Do you believe that this book is the way that, that God allows us to know him? Or are you still wondering if there's someone or something else out there that's going to teach you better than this will? I read an article the other day written by a a, a well-known pastor and teacher and author by the name of Tim Keller, it's who I referenced earlier. Uh, He wrote this article about his recent diagnosis, diagnosis with pancreatic cancer. And... He, he details in this article his experience of being diagnosed and then suddenly being called upon to believe what he had been preaching about death and dying for decades. He says, Jesus' costly love and death and resurrection had become not just something I believed and filed away, but a hope that sustained me all day. I, I really wanted to just read the article to you, the whole thing, and then say amen and sit down. Because he's so good at at articulating his faith. But I think if I did that, I would ignore the specific message that I think this psalm and, and what he was trying to say has for us at Connection Church. And so, let me share just a small portion with you. This isn't this isn't the Bible and Tim Keller isn't Jesus, but I think what he has to say is is helpful in what we're learning this morning. So, so he says this. The title of this article is called Growing My Faith in the Face of Death. On December 6, 1273, Thomas Aquinas stopped writing his monumental Summa, Summa Theologiae. When asked why by his friend Reginald, he replied that he had, he had had a beatific experience of God. Beatific, in this sense, is the imparting of holy bliss, perfect happiness, and great joy. And this beatific experience made all of his theology seem like straw by comparison. 
That was no repudiation of his theology. But Thomas had seen the difference between the map of God and God himself. And a very great difference it was. While I cannot claim that any of my experiences of God in the past several months have been beatific, they have been deeper and sweeter than I have known before. My path to this has involved three disciplines, and I'm only going to share two with you. Listen to this first one. The first was to immerse myself in the Psalms, to be sure that I wasn't encountering a God I had made up myself. Any God I make up will be less troubling and offensive, to be sure, but then how can a God such as that contradict me when my heart says there's no hope or that I'm worthless? The Psalms show me a God maddening in his complexity, but this difficult deity comes across as a real being, not one any human would have conjured. Through the Psalms, I grew in confidence that I was before him with whom we must give account, which is a reference to Hebrews 4.13. The second discipline was something that earlier writers like Edwards called spiritual soliloquy. You see it in Psalms 42 and 103 where the psalmist says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. The authors are addressing neither God nor their readers, but their own souls, their very selves. They are not so much listening to their hearts as talking to them. They are interrogating them and reminding them about God. They are taking the truths about God and pressing them down deep into their hearts until they catch fire there. The Bible, through the work of the Holy Spirit, will ignite the truth of God into your heart. Cancer didn't kill Tim Keller's God. It motivated him to pursue God with even more diligence. Have the truths of God set fire in your heart. Do you know that this book is the way the Holy Spirit will press the truths about God deep into your heart. Do you know that the Holy Spirit will ignite those truths there and use them to change your life, transform your heart, heal your wounds, calm your spirit, invite you into repentance, rest your soul, and turn your eyes heavenward? He did it for David. He'll do it for you too. Another way God invites us to pursue Him is through this very peculiar activity that we're all engaged in right now. We do this regularly along with other bodies of Christ in our city and in our state and in our nation and indeed all across the world. If you're here this morning and and maybe this is one of the first times you've participated in a worship service, or, or in some way uh, this, is, this is a new experience for you. I, I'm really glad you're here, and I want to acknowledge that you might be feeling a little weird about it. What I want you to know is that we do all of these things as a way to respond to something God has already done for us. When we gather together like this to worship God, when we sing together about the Lord, when we gather around God's Word, 
When we pray together, when we confess our sins together, when we receive communion together, we are declaring something true about God and His relationship to us. Because of what He has done, we can worship. He doesn't need anything from us, but He wants our attention. He desires our hearts, and He delights in our worship. I'm not making this up. Did you see it in verse 2? How does David bring to mind God's power and glory? How does David pursue God by remembering his encounters with God in worship? Verse 2, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. The Bible has something important to say about this time we we gather together in worship. Since the steadfast love of God is better than life, there is nothing in life we can offer God in return except for our worship. Our only response is to praise God. Bless God and in His name lift up our hands. And what is the result? Read it in chapter, uh, in verse 5. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Is your soul satisfied? The word soul is is the best translation of of a Hebrew word that means the whole self, the entire being. My entire being will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. Picture that meal that you love so much. You can't wait for it. It leaves you completely satisfied at the end. Food is such an, an appropriate illustration, I think, because we not only need it to survive, but we often use it as a reason to be together with friends or family. It's a sustaining and a relational activity that can leave us temporarily satisfied, but the steadfast love of Christ will leave us eternally satisfied. It is eternally sustaining. When you are faced with, with trials or temptations, or, or maybe you're doing okay this morning, maybe you're feeling good, and the temptation for you is to think you have it all together and that you don't need God, so you're going to have some apathy this week. Will you bring to mind this hour and a half or so of worship? Will this time remind you from, from where your true satisfaction and comfort comes? Have you beheld His power and glory David is showing us that our time of of corporate worship carries over it. It overflows into our week until we meet again. So what's keeping you from experiencing the grace and fullness of God through the gift of worship? Well, I have a couple of things just to think about and be curious about. Maybe one way you could be resolved to pursuing God is to pursue being known here. I know that that is, is a hard thing for a lot of us. I know that for some of you, that short time we spend to dismiss the kids to kids' connection is an awfully uncomfortable time. I'm more introverted than you might think, so I get it. We could just as easily dismiss the kids and volunteers and move right along. 
We don't just do that for a transition time. We believe the Bible has something important to say about our corporate gatherings of worship, that God actually comes and meets with us here when we are together. And to be known as a part of the body of Christ allows us to experience God's presence in a way we can't know alone. We can't know when we remain anonymous. It's a risk to be sure. This place is full of sinners. If you didn't know, I'll let you know now. This place is full of sinners. But if you do it, I think that you will begin to see that the sinners in this room all know that they are. And that because of Jesus, they are loved, they are forgiven, and guess what? So are you. Here's another idea. Do you need to try participating in worship with your lips or with raised hands as David does? Listen, there's no, there's no contest, okay? There's no like worship badges that you're going to get. We don't have like the best voice badge or the highest raised hands badge or the, clap, the clapping badge, okay? But it seems the Bible wants us to at least consider how the external expressions of worship glorify God and minister to the body of Christ. Do you need to attend a membership class to understand more fully what it means to belong in a covenantal way to other believers? Do you need to be baptized? These are all ways we can respond to a God who is calling us to Himself whose steadfast love is better than life. Okay, a little disclaimer here. Some of you know that I have not been baptized yet. And yes, that should bother you. That should bother you. How could I stand up here and say that without being baptized myself? I want you to know that it's coming. Baptism is an outward, public expression of a personal and internal transformation brought about by the Holy Spirit. And I'm excited to share in that act of worship with my wife and with you in a couple weeks. God delights in our worship, uses our corporate gatherings to teach us about Himself, draw us to Himself, and win the hearts of you and me for His glory. He doesn't have to do this, but for some mysterious reason, He does, and He delights in it. His steadfast love is better than life. I've said that multiple times as I've been up here, and there's a reason for that. It's the point that I probably have the toughest time believing. How about you? I spend a lot of time thinking about how to make life better, more comfortable and enjoyable. Do you do that? The ironic part is that many of the best decisions about making my life better and more comfortable have led to some of the most uncomfortable seasons of my life. These are the times I resolve to pursue comfort and pleasure over God. My family recently returned from a trip I intentionally used the word trip to describe it. It was a good trip. It was a necessary trip, but not for the reasons I've been looking forward to for months ahead of time. And it got me to thinking about trips. 
I always look forward to them. I look forward to them with a lot of zeal, a lot of anticipation. And when the time comes to travel, I pack tons of stuff. I bring two books. I bring my Bible because I'm going to wake up and know when the sun rises and I'm going to read some scripture. I bring my tennis shoes because I'm going to get so much exercise. I bring my earbuds because I'm going to listen to all these podcasts I want to listen to. You know, and then I get there, and I don't read a single book. I don't watch the sunrise. I don't have one minute of exercise. I listen to a half of a podcast. I use 10% of the stuff I packed, and all the stuff I thought was going to be rejuvenating isn't, and I end up fighting off this unwelcome sense of disappointment. You know what I'm talking about? Why do I do this? It's kind of a silly story. But in this particular example, I believe that there is something better in life than the steadfast love of God. Vacations are better. That's what I really think. Oh, it's so silly, I know. But it's real. I trust in vacations to do the thing God promises He can do better than anything this world can offer. And when I change the words of this psalm to, Oh, vacation, you are my God, earnestly I seek you, I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed when I read the rest of the psalm in that context. Okay, your turn. If you were to put a different word in there, what word would it be? Oh, blank, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. Is it, oh, job? Is it, oh, job, you are my God? Oh, money, oh, relationship, oh, sex, oh, misery, oh, approval, what is it for you? Put that word in there and then, and then keep reading down a few lines and I think you'll feel that discomfort I did. Now listen, vacations aren't bad. I still like them and I'm grateful for them, but, but sometimes I want to make the vacation do something it simply cannot do, and I leave disappointed. Any word that goes in that blank that isn't God is going to be disappointing at best, but it will probably be heartbreaking and hurtful. Praise God, this is something we can confess. Many times we resolve to pursue things on this earth in order to make life better, to make a little heaven on earth, because we don't really believe that the steadfast love of God is better than life. Confess that and begin to experience the flood of grace and mercy that God lavishes upon us as he reminds us through psalms like this one that it's true. That God's steadfast love is better than life. It is the overflow of this truth. It's the overflow of this truth in our lives that leads to the enjoyment of the good gifts God gives us because we stop playing. I'm excited about it. <laughs> we stop placing unrealistic expectations on the things of this earth to satisfy us. I like to imagine David walking up the Mount of Olives, weeping with his head covered, weeping with his household, 
praying this prayer without knowing that many generations later, another better king would climb that same hill praying to God. Another better king would be hunted down and captured in that very same place. Another better king would be dragged out of the same place and put on trial and convicted for crimes he did not commit. He would be mocked and beaten and tortured and put up on a cross and left to die because he loved his wandering people so much that he took their place. He died a death we deserve to die, was buried and then in a moment that literally changed the calendar for the rest of time, stood up from death and walked out of that tomb and ascended victoriously to sit at the right hand of God, defeating sin and death for you and for me for all time, not because we deserved it, but because he delighted to do it on our behalf so that we could be with him Forever, even now. David was able to cope with his wilderness experience because he could see the glory and power of God and he longed to attach his soul to him. David was confidently looking forward to a victory in the future. He says, but those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals, but the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. David didn't know it yet. He hoped for it. But we know. We know. Jesus won. (laughs) The victory is ours. He won for you and for me freedom from the disappointing search for satisfaction from the things of this earth. He tells us he knows about the tragedy and sorrow we experience. He's been in the wilderness and he made it out so that he could show us the way. He made a way for us to meet with God, to find rest and comfort in the shadow of His wing, and to trust that our souls were made to cling to Him. Because of this, because of this, we can say with confidence, O God, You are my God. Earnestly I will seek after You. Let's pray together. God, help us. I confess that so many times I try to make this earth heaven. I seek after comfort and pleasure as if it could somehow satisfy me. Father, you know all those words that that we use to fill in the blank the things we earnestly seek after that leave us disappointed. Father, would you help us lay those before you? Would you help us to know and believe and understand that your steadfast love is better than life? Help us, God, to be occupied with you in the midst of all of our circumstances. Help us to be resolved to seek after you in the midst of all of our circumstances. And Father, you promise that when we are in the wilderness, you won't leave us there. That you come, that you're with us, and that the victory has already been won. 
Help us believe that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.